What is up, psychos? It's Catherine Poulos here, your host of Error Unknown, a mystery podcast. It is 9 a.m. on Tuesday morning, and here I am recording this podcast, trying to get it in right in the last minute, like right... I just, uh, procrastination is really going to be the death of me. I've been doing this my whole life, just waiting until the last minute to do shit that I need to do. And I'm still here, 28 years old, and I'm still doing it. If anybody knows how to stop being the worst procrastinator ever, please let me know. Like, it takes over my life sometimes, and I, I I don't know how to remedy it. So if you have tips for procrastination, please send them to me. Um, (laughs) Anyways, thank you guys so much for downloading this podcast. I think we're at like 300 downloads, which is super exciting. Um, And if you enjoy this, please, please share it with a friend. I know that everybody is always looking for podcast recommendations, so you have no excuse. You must share this with a friend. And I will know if you don't. I'd have analytics. I know. But no, thank you guys so much. I appreciate every single last one of you who listens and who messages me um, saying nice things about it. I, I really do. I really do appreciate you. Um, this week we are doing a requested case and this one came from a DM on Instagram. This is, oh my God, my stomach just growled so bad. I hope you can't hear that in the microphone. (laughs) Oh God. Um, we're doing a requested case that came through a DM on Instagram and this is the Travis Walton abduction of 1975. Um, the Travis Walton story, it may just be one of the most credible alien abductee stories that we know of. Not only was he missing for five days and then returned, there were also six other firsthand eyewitness accounts of his abduction. And despite many skeptics trying to debunk it, it remains one of the best documented cases of alien abductions ever recorded. This is the story of Travis Walton. November 5th, 1975, a 22-year-old man named Travis Walton was working with a crew of about six other men at Sitgraves Apache National Forest near Snowflake, Arizona. The crew consisted of Mike Rogers, Ken Peterson, John Gallette, Alan Dallas, Steve Pierce, and Dwayne Smith. Their job was to cut down dead trees to enhance the beauty and to increase timber production in the area. They traveled into the forest together to get their job done and drove back out together at the end of the day. Around 6 p.m. on November 5th, they all piled into Mike's truck to head back into Snowflake after a long day of work. 
While driving, Travis looked slightly off the road and saw a strange glow through the trees. And actually, all of the men saw this light as well. They thought maybe it could be a campfire or possible headlights, but they actually appeared to be higher than where the ground was. It was a, quote, glow in the trees. They thought it could have been trees that were hit by lightning and caught on fire. They had actually put out some fires earlier that morning on their way to work. And this area is actually the second highest frequency of lightning strikes of anywhere in the continental United States. The lights grew brighter the closer they drove until they were completely consuming the dark street. When they finally caught up to it, that's where they saw it. A 40-foot craft with a completely glowing surface about 30 yards away from the road. It was sleek and shiny. It had a dome over the top and was hovering about 15 feet above the ground. No doors or windows or any markings whatsoever. They were all completely stunned. Travis almost immediately gets out of the truck while in motion to get a closer look while the others yell to come back to the truck, but he is fixed, entranced. He can't believe what he's seeing and has to get a closer look to make sure it's real. As he's getting closer, he starts to feel like he should maybe turn around, but not wanting to appear scared, he continues on. He starts to hear a beeping noise the closer he got, until he was standing right underneath it. Right at that moment, everyone hears a big powering up sort of noise, like the engine of this craft was turning on, and the whole thing started to wobble like a spinning top would do right before it falls. Travis hears this, and the men back in the truck feel it. Mike's hands on the steering wheel begin to vibrate from the low frequencies it's emitting. Travis gets really scared now and ducks behind a log to hide while the guys are still screaming at him to get back in the car. He decides to make a run for it, and when he stands up, he immediately feels a numbing shock of energy go straight through his body, and he falls back to the ground unconscious. The crew describes what they see as a huge beam of light that picked Travis up and threw him like a sack of meat 20 feet away. Completely freaking out, thinking it had killed him, Mike and the others peel off and drive away as fast as they could. As they're driving, Mike decides that he can't just leave Travis there, and he ends up turning around to get him. But when they get back, they could have sworn they saw the craft leaving in the night sky, and Travis nowhere to be found. Nothing made sense. He was just right there. They walked around for 20 minutes, trying to comb the area to look for him, but nothing. The UFO had to have taken him. There's no other option. Around 7.35 p.m., they pull over to a payphone to call the Navajo County Sheriff, and Ken Peterson reports Travis missing. At this point, they decide to leave out the weird circumstances surrounding it, just in order to get the cops out there. When Deputy Sheriff Chuck Ellison shows up, 
They see big, burly men in shambles. They are shaking. Some look like they've been crying, and he doesn't know what to make of it. The police at first think that maybe these guys are drunk or just under the influence of drugs, but then they get told the full story of what happened. And while it's hard to believe, Ellison radios the sheriff, Marlon Gillespie, about the missing man and tells him it possibly involves a UFO. He then radios another officer to go to Travis's house to make sure he isn't there. And when that's confirmed, Gillespie gets down to the scene and the men tell him the full story about what happened to Travis. Gillespie remains skeptical, but he's surprisingly somewhat inclined to believe them. He actually had claimed to have had a UFO sighting himself before. And he also had been investigating some cattle mutilations in town that were happening recently. They decide to head back to the scene to do another search, and there is absolutely no evidence to collect. No footprints, broken branches, burned up pine needles, nothing to indicate a spaceship or Travis were ever there. They decide to do another more thorough search in the morning. So November 6th, the search starts. About 50 men start to comb the area looking for Travis. After a full day, there's still no evidence that they can find. Even some of the deputies are starting to talk to the crew and say, hey, you know, tell us where this body is and we can all just go home. So it's safe to say that at this point, the other cops aren't really buying this UFO story. The search continues for four days, including men on horseback, dogs, planes flying overhead, and still absolutely nothing is found. By this time, the word gets out about a possible UFO abduction, and the scene is crawling with UFO experts and media. The cops are starting to doubt the crew's story, thinking possibly that the men actually murdered Travis and are using this wild story as a cover. So they ask the crew to take a polygraph, And this kicks off the start to many polygraphs taken in the course of this story. I would say upwards of about 20 polygraphs were taken. Cy Gilson, the polygraph technician, sets up and wires up all the men and asks them just four questions relating to the disappearance. The last one being, did you tell the truth about seeing a UFO? All of the men pass the polygraph with the exception of one, Alan Dallas, who walked out of the test before it was finished, rendering it inconclusive. So the experts are saying that these men are telling the truth. And even Gillespie, the sheriff, thinks that these men could possibly be telling the truth, or at least believe in their minds that they're telling the truth. That night, a little past midnight, Travis's sister gets a phone call waking her up. Her husband, Grant, answers the phone, and it's Travis asking to be picked up at a gas station. He phones Travis's brother, Dwayne, and they go out to pick him up. And when they get home, Travis is confused, shaking, crying. He's an absolute mess. As he talks to his brothers, trying to tell him what happened, Dwayne expressed how concerned his mother has been. And Travis looked confused. He thought, 
I was only gone for a few hours. Why was mom so worried? And then his brother said, Travis, feel your face. As he did, he noticed that he had a few days worth of beard on his chin. It also seemed like he had lost about 10 pounds. Here's the account of what Travis could remember. He says he remembers waking up on the forest floor, looking up at a spaceship and watched it shoot back into the sky above him, disappearing into the darkness. He got severe pain in his chest and head, and he's wearing the same clothes he had when he passed out. He finally finds the energy to get up and head down the road to a gas station payphone to call for help. And that's it. It looks like he has some kind of puncture wound, but has no memory of it and no bruises on his body at all, despite the fact that he was thrown 20 feet and shocked by a huge beam of light. The only other thing he can seem to remember is creatures, non-human creatures with white, grayish skin and giant eyes. Not wanting the intense media attention and there was intense media attention at this point. Remember, Travis has been reported missing for five days and huge searches have been organized with no evidence coming back from them. There's murder suspicion and nonstop phone calls to the family's houses, reporters on the lawn. It was a circus. So knowing that, and with Travis's story of what he can remember, his brother Dwayne knows there will be even more craziness ahead. He kind of takes charge of the situation. He decides not to tell the police that Travis has returned, and instead they go straight to a hospital in Phoenix to get him examined in private and make sure he's okay or even try to find any evidence on his body that can be used to corroborate his story. Meanwhile, the phone operator who had connected Travis's phone booth call to Grant sensed something was off and informed police of the odd midnight phone call from a payphone to the missing person's family's house. The police were almost certain that Travis had returned. And while at the hospital, Dwayne actually calls the sheriff to let him know that Travis had in fact returned, but refused to tell him where he was. But he does tell him that he's at a private hospital in Tucson, which we know isn't exactly the truth. He's actually in Phoenix. And lying to the police doesn't make these guys look any better or do much for their claims, but Dwayne said he really just wanted to get Travis private help away from the media in order to figure out what really truthfully happened to him. Dwayne and Travis are growing frustrated with regular doctors and their skepticism, so Dwayne makes the decision that he needs a doctor with experience in possible UFO abductions. So he gets in contact with APRO, or the Aerial Phenomenon Research Organization. And they send two doctors out to their house the same day. The doctors conclude that Travis seems to be okay and healthy. But the weird thing is, he doesn't show any signs of starvation, which if he had been gone for five days not eating, they would be able to detect that in his urine. When looking back, I can't help but think about the red dot on his right arm. Could that possibly have been from intravenous feeding by these creatures? And actually, Travis believes this theory as well. 
At this point, though, the sheriff hears that Travis is at Dwayne's house and decides to come by to talk to them and try and understand where Travis has been and just to get his side of the story. Travis tells him everything he can remember about the creatures and the spaceship and everything. Gillespie is having kind of a hard time taking it seriously, but sees how broken up Travis is. So Travis agrees to take a polygraph to kind of clear his name, but he said it has to be private away from the media and Gillespie agrees. But before he gets a chance to take this polygraph, the family gets approached by the National Enquirer. Now, APRO is actually on the National Enquirer's panel of experts because they tend to do a lot of alien UFO stories. The Enquirer offers to put Travis and his family up in a hotel room to kind of get away from all the other media in exchange for an exclusive with them. They will also pay for all of the scientific testing that APRO thinks should be done. Travis and Dwayne just wanting the truth of what happened to him they accept this offer. And on November 13th, Travis and Dwayne check into the Scottsdale Sheridan to start this quote-unquote testing. April brings in a UFO specialist and says the best way that they can uncover any memories of the event is to put Travis under hypnosis. And hypnosis, not unlike the polygraph, isn't a tried-and-true method of uncovering secrets. Experts believe while it can help to uncover suppressed memories, it can also create false memories, making the two completely indistinguishable from each other in the subject's mind. But in Travis's case, we get the mother load. Very detailed descriptions of what happened to Travis that fateful night. Details that never seem to change over the course of his life. And all we can do is hope that these are real memories being unlocked. Here's what happened. Travis says his first memory was going in and out of consciousness for a while and realizing he was in a lot of pain. He could hear the sounds of movement around him. He knew that something was terribly wrong. When he finally could open his eyes, he found himself in a circular, small, cramped room. He was lying on a table made of the same material as the floor, as if it was one complete object. He thought for a quick second that his crew had brought him to that hospital. He tried to focus his eyes, and when he finally did, he saw the creatures. He described them as completely hairless, No eyebrows, head hair, or eyelashes. They were somewhat small, around four or five feet tall, and had huge eyes that kept staring at him. Their skin was a grayish white, almost void of pigment or texture, and they were wearing orangish-brown coveralls. They had long fingers, but no fingernails. As you could imagine, Travis freaked out and became violent. He rolled off the table away from them and grabbed any object he could find and swung it at the creatures. He was going to try and fight his way past them to the door that he could see behind them. During this time, he felt like he could never get enough air to breathe. Noticing the violent behavior from him and possibly knowing they were too small to subdue him, the creatures left the room. 
They went to the right, and so Travis went to the left, trying to find a way out. He said, if I could just find a door, I'll drop to the ground in the woods, and it'll all be okay. He came to a room and saw a single chair surrounded by some buttons. As he entered, the wall started to darken and looks like a projection you would see at a planetarium of the night sky. He thinks he is actually seeing the night sky, but still doesn't quite believe that's where he actually is. He pushed some of the buttons to try and open the doors, but it didn't work. And then suddenly, a human-like man entered the room. At this point, Travis has calmed down to see another human. He thought he would maybe rescue him. He described him as a human-like man, but didn't quite act the same as a human. He later said it was possible that the aliens, learning that they couldn't control him because he woke up and was much bigger than them, they had an android-like human try and go into the room to calm him down and get him to cooperate. The man was wearing blue coveralls. He had the facial features of a man with longish hair, but no military or indicators as to who he was. He was also wearing a clear helmet. He motioned like he wanted Travis to come with him, and assuming he was there to help him, Travis went along. The man took him out through an airlock-like area. It was cooler and easier to breathe. Travis kept asking him questions, but the man never answered him. He takes him into another room with other human-like people and left him with these others. And though Travis kept asking questions to these people, none of them answered him. They were trying to get him to lay down on another table, and realizing they might not be trying to help anymore, Travis started to resist. He feels like he woke up in the middle of a medical procedure of some sort, possibly a procedure treating him for the injury from the light blast. Travis said these human-like people looked like a family of sort. When they finally did get him onto the table, they administered an anesthesia-like gas to him through a mask over his face. And the next thing he remembered was feeling the cold air through his clothes. He opened his eyes to the glowing light going up above him and disappearing into the night sky. And that's when he ran down the street to the town to a payphone to try and get help. So after the hypnosis reveals all of this, he is still scheduled to take a polygraph the next day, one that he was promised would be private. But apparently word got out, and as Travis is about to leave the house and head to the sheriff's, Reporters bombard him, asking him to comment about it, and Travis and Dwayne are pissed. They get so angry that they call up the sheriff to tell him they will not be coming in to take the test, and instead, the inquirer ends up bringing in psychiatrists and polygraph technicians of their own to do their own lie detector test. The psychiatrists don't really agree that the lie detector test is a good idea, But they come to an agreement that if the results come back unfavorably, they won't publish the results. And wouldn't you know it, Travis takes the poly and fails it. Now, the psychiatrists tell him that the polygraph test is by no means accurate. A polygraph test actually measures stress levels in the body and not necessarily the truth. 
So you can only imagine being strapped into a machine with wires connected to you, being asked questions about a traumatic experience. That in itself is a hugely stressful experience. So of course, it's not going to be completely accurate all the time. You're not even allowed to bring up polygraph results in court because of their lack of actual substantial concrete evidence. But they decide to publish Travis's story anyways. The Inquirer publishes an exclusive story in December of 1975, and this story is the exact story he told in his hypnosis session. Two months later, Travis, Dwayne, and Mary, their mother, all take another polygraph test, and they all pass, and the results are published. And this is kind of where this story ends. There were so many people who tried to debunk this story. A few notable ones include cognitive psychologist Susan Clancy. She argued in her book that alien abduction reports began only after stories of extraterrestrials appeared in films and on TV, and that Walton was likely influenced by the NBC television movie The UFO Incident, which had coincidentally aired on TV two weeks before his own claimed abduction. And she said that he dramatized the alien abduction claims of Barney and Betty Hill. Clancy noted that the rise in alien abduction claims following the movie and stated that after viewing this movie, any person with little imagination could now become an instant celebrity. And one of those was Travis Walton. Another debunker and UFO researcher named Philip Klass considered Travis's story to be a hoax perpetrated by financial gain and discovered many discrepancies in his story. Class said that the polygraphs were poorly administered and that Walton used polygraph countermeasures like holding his breath or pricking his finger. Science and skepticism writer Michael Shermer criticized Walton's claim, saying the polygraph was not a reliable determiner of truth and that he doesn't believe that Travis was actually abducted. And while we can all probably agree that, yeah, a polygraph isn't a reliable determiner of truth, which is why there were multiple tests done with different conclusions each time. None of this to me is proof that he made it all up. It's all conjecture. What makes me believe his story is the sole proof of six co-workers of his that saw exactly what was described, and not one of them to this day has ever flip-flopped on those claims. You can say Travis made this up for financial gain or for celebrity status, but I don't think you can say the same for these co-workers. They have no reason to lie, and in that lies the truth for me. Any case in trial that included six witnesses all seeing the same thing, that would win hands down across the board. Some people think that the government had a huge hand in trying to suppress the information that Travis was coming forward with. A lot of that finger-pointing was directed at Philip Class. He was getting really worked up in trying to debunk this story and appears to have some sort of special agenda. A lot of people think he was being paid off by the government to poke holes in abduction claims and try to assassinate the character of the people involved. This isn't such a crazy theory either. I mean, Going back to the first couple weeks of the investigation, the six members of the crew actually reported seeing government officials outside of their homes. 
They claim to have seen men in suits sitting in the same type of government cars, just watching them. Travis has spent years of his life defending himself, and his co-workers continue to defend him to this day. There was actually some scientific testing done on the trees in the area, and in the exact spot where the abduction took place, they saw a huge acceleration of growth in the trees, like double the rate of growth in just the trees in that direct area of the abduction. They actually claimed that it was similar to something that happened to the trees surrounding Chernobyl after the events there. I thought that was such an interesting piece of information because it's actually scientific evidence that something was happening in that area. Earlier this year, even in 2020, the Pentagon officially released three short videos of UFOs or unidentified aerial phenomenon that had been previously released by a private company. The video shows what appears to be unidentified flying objects rapidly moving while recorded by infrared cameras. Two of the videos included audio from service members reacting in awe at how quickly the objects were moving. One voice speculates that it could be a drone, but later interviews said that they moved in ways that were completely unnatural to this world. The Navy previously acknowledged the veracity of these videos in September of last year and officially released them in order to clear up any misconceptions by the public on whether or not the footage that has been circulating was real or whether or not there's more to the videos, according to the Pentagon spokesperson, Sugo. After a thorough review, the department has determined that the authorized release of these unclassified videos does not reveal any sensitive capabilities or systems, said Go in a statement, and does not impinge on any subsequent investigations of military airspace incursions by unidentified aerial phenomena. The Navy now has formal guidelines for how its pilots can report when they believe they have seen a possible UFO. The Navy videos were first released between December 2017 and March 2018 by To The Stars Academy of the Arts and Sciences, a company that says it studies information about unidentified aerial phenomena. In 2017, one of the pilots who saw one of the unidentified objects in 2004 told CNN that it moved in ways he couldn't explain. Quote, As I got close to it, it rapidly accelerated to the south and disappeared in less than two seconds, said retired U.S. Navy pilot David Fravor. This was extremely abrupt, like a ping pong ball bouncing off a wall. It would hit and go the other way. The Pentagon has previously studied recordings of aerial encounters with unknown objects as part of a since-defunct classified program that was launched at the behest of former Senator Harry Reid of Nevada. The program was launched in 2007 and ended in 2012, according to the Pentagon, because they assessed that there were higher priorities that needed funding. Nevertheless, Louis Elzondo, the former head of the classified program, told CNN in 2017 that he personally believes there is very compelling evidence that we may not be alone. These aircraft, we'll call them aircraft, are displaying characteristics that are not currently within the U.S. inventory, nor in any foreign inventory that we are aware of, Elizondo said of objects they researched. 
He says he resigned from the Defense Department in 2017 in protest over the secrecy surrounding the program and the internal opposition to funding it. Reid tweeted that he was glad that the Pentagon officially released these videos, but that it only scratches the surface of the research and materials available. The U.S. needs to take a serious scientific look into this and any potential national security implications. Travis went on to write a book about his experience called Fire in the Sky, and it was later adapted into a movie with the same title in 1993. Though Travis wasn't 100% content with how the film portrayed the events, he insisted that there is more to the story that people still don't know about, and he hopes one day that everything will come to light. Whether or not you believe Travis's story, I think most people and scientists can agree that we're most likely not alone in this universe, and it's only a matter of time before we know for sure. Thank you guys so much for listening to this week's episode of Air Unknown. Um, Like always, I always want to end with telling you guys, if you could please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating. It will really help us um, in terms of visibility uh, for other people to find our podcasts. And I really want to be able to reach more people and I want more people to feel like they have something in common with each other. Everybody likes a good mystery. So, um, please tell, tell your friends about the podcast if, um, they're looking for some recommendations. Also, please go on Instagram at air unknown podcast. Uh, give us a follow there and on Twitter at air unknown pod. Also, shoot us an email at airunknownpodcast at gmail.com if you have any stories that you want me to uh, cover in the coming weeks. Um, I have a little idea for Halloween. I think I want to do some campfire stories or something like that. Um, Maybe like an hour-long episode with just a bunch of stories in there. So if that's something you guys are interested in, let me know. Um, If you have any other ideas or cases you want me to look at, uh, DM me, email me, whatever. You guys know the drill. Um, thank you guys again so much for listening and I will talk to you guys next week. I love you all so much. Stay weird. Bye.